following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. Growing up in, in Walnut, um, especially during the summer, my younger brother and I, my younger brother's a year and a half younger than me. He was a year behind me in school, so we had all the same friends. Um, but we used to run around together all the time. And, and so in the summer especially, we would get up in the morning, we'd eat breakfast, and we'd leave the house. And we would be gone till lunch. We'd come home and eat. Right? That morning, we might go to baseball practices or you know, ride, ride our bikes around town, whatever. But we came home because we needed food, so we ate lunch. And then we would leave again and be gone all day. My mom knew where we were in the summer months at breakfast and at lunch. She didn't know where. We were all over the place. We were playing in the the creek that ran through town. We were playing football. We were playing baseball. We were riding our bikes. We did all kinds of stuff, but mom had no idea where we were. And that was okay with her, right? Different time, different day and time, right? But that was okay with her. But there was one rule. There was one rule that we had. See, in Walnut, they still have a six o'clock whistle that was from, from you know, years and years ago when the, you know, six o'clock was the end of the day, everybody come home. But there's still a six o'clock whistle that blows every single day at six o'clock. The one rule we had is wherever you were, whatever you were doing, when the six o'clock whistle blew, you got your butt home, right? Because dinner was served, you move. That was it. The rest of the day was ours. But we knew when the whistle blew, we went home. Now, for most of us, there aren't many times in our lives where we have a, a calling that's, that's clear. That's that clear, do we? Where you know, when I hear this, boom, there I am. Very few of us have times and places in our lives where our calling is that clear. In fact, as you sit here today, you may even be going through a season in your life, or you've been through a season where you look around at what's going on, you, you look at what's happening in your life, and you go, yeah, do I even have a calling? Do I even have a, a, a purpose? Do I even have a mission? Right? Many of us find ourselves there at some point or another. But at the same time, we all know this, right? That wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, whatever your stage of life, you have a calling. You have a purpose. You have a mission. See, it's not a matter of whether we have a calling or not. It's a matter of how prepared we are to follow it, to respond to it. Just like I was always prepared to respond to that six o'clock whistle. Over the next few months, as we study the life of Nehemiah, we're going to see how Nehemiah heard, followed, and remained confident in God's calling in his life. And in doing so, we'll see how we can joyfully engage in the mission that God has given each and every one of us, and how he will use that mission for his glory and to grow and mature us in our faith. But as we start today, we'll assess how we identify and prepare to act upon God's calling in our lives. Before we get into the book of Nehemiah, we have to remember where we're at in the, the historical story of Israel, right? And we're not going to go into real deep detail here, but let me give you the broad overview, starting back with King David, because we all know King David, right? He was the little guy who fought the giant with the sling, right? and then he became king of Israel, but when David becomes king over Israel, he starts the, this powerful time in Israel's history. 
It works from David and it works through his son, Solomon. Now, David had been king starting in around 1000 or, or, or 110 BC. Okay, so about a thousand years before Jesus, David becomes king. Solomon, his son, becomes king. Things are great in Israel. Then Solomon has some kids. Solomon dies, and his sons fight. And the, the nation of Israel split into two. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is Israel, or sometimes referred to as Ephraim. The southern kingdom is Judah. And in the southern kingdom is the town of Jerusalem. And over the next several hundred years, these two halves of Israel fight. They fight with each other. They fight with all the people around them. And eventually, they're both defeated. And they're both carried away from their homeland into exile. And after a time in exile, there's a a group of these Israelites who are sent back to Jerusalem. And they go to, to rebuild the temple. They're given permission by their captors to go back and rebuild the temple. And they start doing the work, but it doesn't really happen. And then uh, somewhere around 458 BC, a man named Ezra comes back to Jerusalem. And he helps finish the work in the temple. The temple is restored. But the city, the protective walls... And the people of Jerusalem are not restored. Thirteen years later, we begin the story of a man named Nehemiah. A man who will help rebuild the city and will help restore God's people. But this work that he's going to do to rebuild the city, to restore God's people, begins with a calling. In Nehemiah's calling, we see that our own purpose and our own mission starts with God's calling. It starts when God stirs our hearts. God stirs our hearts. And we see this in the first three verses of Nehemiah chapter one, where it says, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakali, during the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, And I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. God stirs our hearts. Verse 1 here in Nehemiah chapter 1 starts with, with just identifying who's doing the writing. Nehemiah, whose name means the Lord comforts, Nehemiah tells us that this is his memoir of what God is doing, of what God is going to do in him, through him, and in the city of Jerusalem. We're also given then a little bit of historic context here. He says this happens in the month of Kislev, which, which is really about November, December time, okay? So November, December, he says in the 20th year, we're going to find out in chapter 2 that this means the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. There's going to be a test later, so make sure you keep all these things in your head. But he says this happens in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. Now, we go back uh, again to what we know of history, and we know that this, this is about 445 B.C. Okay, so about 400 years before Jesus arrives. 
November, December of 445. That's Nehemiah saying, okay, here's what's happening. Here's where we are. Then he goes on in verse 2, and he starts telling us what happened at this time. And he says, one of my brothers, Hanani, arrived from Jerusalem. And, and when Hanani, one of his brothers, arrives, Nehemiah asks him two questions. Right? He asks about God's people and about the city. Now, here's a really interesting thing you come across when you study this passage. We read this, and, and for most of us, our Bibles say, I questioned him about Jerusalem and about the Jewish remnant. In the, in the Hebrew, it's very clear that he asks first about the people, second about the city. In, in, in the, the, the Hebrew writing, he asks first about the people. His concern is for God's people and for God's city. He wants to know what's going on in this place that, that God loves, to these people that God loves and that I love. He says, how is God going to do amazing things for his children in this place? And the answer he gets is all bad news. Right? Hannah and I says, listen, the, the people are downtrodden, the walls are broken down, the gates are burned. He says, there is nothing good happening in Jerusalem. And this just devastates Nehemiah. But what I want you to see in these first three verses is that Nehemiah's question, the fact that the first thing he asks his brother when he returns from Jerusalem is about God's people and God's city, is that his heart and his mind have been with God's people and been in God's city for quite some time now. When, when someone comes to you after a long journey, the first thing you ask them is, is probably something you really want to know about, right? He doesn't ask about the journey back. He doesn't ask about the weather in Jerusalem. He says, how are God's people? How is God's city? Tell me. I need to know. God has been laying this on my heart, and it, it, I, I, I need to know. Tell me. See, God's been preparing Nehemiah for the mission to which this news will set his course. And God's doing the same thing in your life right now. Whether you realize it or not, whether you want to admit it or not, God is doing one of two things in your life right now. He's either A, preparing you for a mission, or B, presenting you a mission opportunity. I can guarantee in your life, God is doing one of those two things right now. He's preparing you for the mission, or he's presenting you with a mission. You know how I know that? Because God doesn't waste any time. God doesn't waste any time saying, okay, wherever you're at, just languish there for a little while. Just hang out. This time, this season of your life, it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. You know what one of my favorite stories of King David is? In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 34 through 37. It's when King David, when King David before he's king, is going to go up and fight Goliath. Right? And, and, and he, he hears Goliath chanting, taunting the Israelites. He says, why is nobody going out to fight him? And they're like, do you see the dude? Like, I'm not fighting that guy. He'll destroy us. David goes, I'll fight him. Right? And David's brothers are there. They're like, 
just be quiet. Like, they want to smack him. Stop running your mouth. But David goes, no, 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 I'll fight him. Where's the king? Let me go talk to the king. So he goes to Saul. And Saul's like, uh, okay, little guy, how are you going to fight the giant? And then David says this in verse 34 through 37. I love this. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. You hear what David says? Again, think back to David's life. From the time he's anointed as king by Samuel to the time he actually becomes king is really anywhere from about 12 to 20 years. Now, if I anoint you king and say, just wait 20 years, you'll be fine. How impatient do you get? Maybe you don't get impatient. I would. I would be like, let's go. Like, if this is going to happen, God, let's do it. Come on, let's go. Now, let's go now. I'm tired of waiting, God. Let's go. Come on. Why are we waiting so long? What's going on? Why is this happening? I could do that better. God, let's go. But you know what David does? He does what he's called to do in the moment. And he recognizes that what God has him doing, tending sheep while he's an anointed king of Israel, is preparing him for what God's going to do next. He says, look, God taught me all this stuff. He taught me how to fight a lion. He taught me how to fight a bear. He taught me how to protect those that are under my protection. God has prepared me for this moment. Tending sheep was not a waste of time. God was preparing me, and now God's set me on this mission, and I'm not going to run from it. I'm going to step up. I'm going to take on what God has put in front of me. There's no time wasted. Listen, God works the same in each one of our lives. He's working in our hearts today. He is preparing you for a purpose, whether you realize it or not. And listen, whatever passion God is stirring in your heart, Remember that that's a passion he has given you. And it's not one for for your success or your happiness or your fulfillment. You may come to those things, but that's not the point. The purpose is for God's glory. He's preparing you for what he wants you to do. For his glory. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a person's heart. He says, you can have passions, you have desires. That's fine. He says, but the Lord's decree will prevail. Because God will send you where he wants to send you and give you the work he wants you to do. So how do we think about the, the passions and the, the purposes in our lives? Do we recognize that where God has put us and what God is doing in our lives is not about us? It's about his glory. It's what he has stirred in us. It's the mission, the purpose that he has given us. It's the direction he wants to send us. Listen, God wants to, 
Every single one of you. Every single one of us. God wants to use us. He wants to use you. I don't care if you're three years old or 103 years old or anywhere in between and beyond. Trying to cover all my bases. (laughs) There's no point, no time in your life where God doesn't want to use you. Okay, so with that in mind, how do we proceed? We feel our hearts stirred. What's next? Well, Nehemiah shows us in verse 4 where he says, next, we seek clarity. We seek clarity. Verse 4, right? Nehemiah has just received this horrible news about the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. And he says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heavens. Nehemiah responds to this bad news. Right? His response here is, is fivefold. He stops, he weeps, he mourns, he fasts, he prays. Right? Weeping and, and, and mourning are, are tied together. Right? Weeping is an immediate response of being emotionally overwhelmed. Mourning is a, a process that when we study scripture, we see this goes on oftentimes for, for days or, or even weeks, sometimes even years. But Nehemiah, in, in hearing this news, he stops, right? He says, okay, let's, let's look at this. And then he weeps. He has that emotional response, that, that overwhelming response. And then he, he mourns. And in his mourning, he seeks God's will for the next steps, right? This is a, a, a clarifying response, this mourning. And it's accompanied by fasting and praying. So he has the emotional response, and then he has the clarifying response to those emotions. But the emotion is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But it needs that clarifying response. There's a lesson that I learned when I was a little kid playing sports, right? which was that oftentimes a penalty is given not for someone's, react, not for someone's aggression, but for your reaction to the aggression, right? It means if, if, if and for me, it was playing basketball. Somebody kind of gave me an elbow, right? I go, oh, well, my initial response is I'm gonna elbow you back, right? And who gets called for the foul? I do. Because it's not the, the action, it's not the aggression that often gets, it's, it's what you do with that. How do you respond to that is what is crucial in that next step, right? And, and we see this with our kids all the time too, if I'm in the other room and all of a sudden I hear crying and screaming, I come out, you know who gets in trouble? Probably the one who hit the other one, even though, you know, the one who's crying probably started it. And I know this. <laughs> but it's not often the aggression that is penalized. It's the reaction. And so the question for us in this idea of, okay, so what do we do with that emotional response, right? Is when you feel overwhelmed, like think about in your life when you, you're at that moment where Nehemiah was, where he's just overwhelmed with what he's heard and how distraught he is, right? Do you, do you freeze in fear? Do you become erratic in confusion? Or do you purposefully stop, engage those emotions, and seek clarity in God's will for that moment or for what's next. 
Well, how do we do that, right? Isn't that the, the next question? Okay, yeah, that, that sounds good. Like, when I have that emotional response, I should, should be able to stop and go, okay, God, what do you want next? Well, how do I do that? Nehemiah tells us. He says, fast and pray. You want to find clarity in what God is stirring in your heart and what to do with that? Fast and pray. Right? And I'm not saying these are the only means of finding clarity, and I'm not saying that if you do these things, you'll be struck with clarity lightning or anything like that. But I'm saying if we will fast and pray, we put ourselves in a perfect position to hear what God wants to say to us and to be ready for what he calls us to next. Fasting and praying. Right? Fasting is um, very unpopular in modern Christianity. Can I say that? I think that's a fair assessment. We as the, as, as the, the current church, we don't like the idea of fasting. And I think usually it's because we, we hear the word fasting and we go, okay, I have to go 40 days and 40 nights without food. Like that is fasting. And if I don't do that, I didn't really fast. Because we like to make things as hard as we can on ourselves. But when we understand that fasting is simply a, a, a measure to refocus our hearts, we begin to see how beautiful it is and how amazing it is in our lives, right? Because at its core, fasting is simply a measure of refocusing our hearts. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, um, Moses is, is talking to the Israelites as they're in the wilderness before they go into the promised land. And he's telling them, hey, remember God's power. Remember God's might. Remember how he has taken care of you. And in verse 3, he says, The Lord humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Right? What Moses is saying is, listen, nothing in this world is going to provide for you. Only the Lord will provide for you. Fasting is a remembrance of that. Fasting says nothing will provide for me but the Lord. Right, so let me encourage you, even if you're not seeking clarity in something in your life right now, try this this week. Fast. Pick a day, just one day, and fast. And here's the thing. You'll find some people who debate this. You'll find some people say, no, fasting has to be about food. I do not believe that fasting has to be about food. Because every time we see fasting in the, in the scriptures, it's about refocusing our hearts. Right? So for you, maybe a day of fasting is when you would normally go home and, and turn on the TV for an hour, shut the TV off, spend time in prayer and fasting. When you would normally you know, flip through your phone mindlessly, checking social media, stop, put the phone away, spend some time with the Lord. Maybe it's even good things, like you, you might sit down at the end of the day and be like, oh, well, here's my time to sit and read this book that I wanted to read. Put it down and pick up your Bible instead. Spend a little more time in God's word. Whatever it is, fasting is simply a measure of saying all this stuff that I do in my life, that I put in my life, that I come to over and over and over again, I don't need it. What I need is the Lord. What I need is the God who saves. Fasting will bring clarity to our lives. But, but Nehemiah also says then he fasts and he what? He prays. He prays. Now, we all know about prayer, right? I don't even need to talk about prayer, right? Because every, every person who's ever been in church knows about prayer. 
right? We're, we're probably really good about praying at mealtimes or when the kids go to bed. But are we a people of prayer? Are we a people of prayer? Because the truth is prayer and becoming people of prayer and praying and hearing the clarity of God's call in our lives is a lot like training any muscle in our bodies. If I said, okay, let's go out and let's all go walk 50 miles today. Some of you could do it. I wouldn't want to try. That's a whole other issue. But you can't just say, well, you know what? I'm going to go walk 50 miles. I'm going to go walk 100 miles. I'm going to get up off the couch, and I'm just going to go do it. Try. Go for it. But it's not going to work out well. What's required? Training. You get up, and you walk two miles today. And then you do that for a week. And then you walk three or four. And over a course of time, you add more, and you add more, and you add more. And you build up that muscle, you build up that endurance, you build up that stamina that you need. And prayer is, prayer is like that in our lives. And if you've only ever prayed at mealtime or at bedtime, it's, it's hard to sit in prayer. And listen, even if you've been praying consistently and, and have a very vibrant prayer life, there are times where you sit down and pray and you're like, I don't, I don't, I don't know, God. I don't know what I'm supposed to say now, right? Is it just me? Am, am I the only one? Because I get in a lot of blank stares, which makes me feel really bad about the fact that that happens to me. Um, but, <laughs> but the reality is you, you, you have to learn to just sit with the Lord, to hear his voice, to listen. But we're called to engage in prayer constantly, right? First Thessalonians 5.17. Anybody know? Anybody know what it says? Pray continually without ceasing, depending, yeah, right? So students in the room, you want to learn a Bible verse? <laughs> First Thessalonians 5.17, pray constantly. And, and you know, where the, uh, you know the, where the qualifier to that is? You know what gets you out of that? It, it doesn't exist. We're called to pray constantly, pray without ceasing. That requires effort on our part. We have to find ways to go, okay, God, I want, I, I want to spend this time in prayer. I want to hear your voice. What does this look like? Right? And, 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 and for you, maybe that's, hey, i got to set some times where I'm just going to stop in the middle of the day and pray, right? you got a, you got a phone with a timer or an alarm on it. You, you set an alarm for every couple hours, and it just reminds you, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to pray. Maybe you need to identify those prompts that God gives you. Right, when it is that you're like, oh, I should pray for that person and learn to just stop right then and pray for that person. Maybe you need to find some kind of prayer guides. You can, you can jump online, you can find all kinds of prayer guides that help lead you through prayer. Maybe you just need to stop and pray. You know, on, on Sunday mornings at nine o'clock, we have our discovery groups going on. Um, if you're not involved in a discovery group, we leave this room open. You could just come and sit and pray. 45 minutes to an hour where you can just sit and pray? Maybe that's a good start for you. But the, the, the reality is that at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, okay, God, how are, we, how are we preparing ourselves? How are we positioning ourselves to hear your voice and hear it clearly? 
Nehemiah sits and he seeks clarity to what God is stirring in his heart. The last aspect of Nehemiah's response is found in his beautiful prayer and the rest of this chapter. We hear through his prayer in verse 5 through 11. We see how God provides for the faithful. God provides for the faithful. Listen to Nehemiah's prayer, right? So he's heard this horrible news. He stops, he weeps, he mourns, he fasts, he prays. In verse 5, Nehemiah says, I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keeps his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servant, the Israelites. I confess the sins that we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I, choose, where I chose to have my name dwell. They're your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At that time, I was the king's cupbearer. God provides for the faithful. See, in Nehemiah's prayerful response, we hear a man with a clear vision of what God was calling him to. And a man who's resting in God's provision, right? Because he's not saying, God, let me have success because I'm really good at this and I can handle this on my own. No, he comes in repentance saying, God, listen, we have blown it. Your people have blown it. My family has blown it. I have blown it. We don't deserve for you to take care of us. But Father, we repent. We come to you knowing that your word has said, if we repent and come to you, you will return us to the place where your name dwells, and that's Jerusalem. And he says, now, Father, give me, give me the strength that I need. Give me the success. Right? Notice that he's saying, God, you grant me success in the presence of this man. This man is the king to whom Nehemiah knows he will have to go and clear this with. See, Nehemiah is asking the awe-inspiring God to hear his heart, to forgive his sins and rebellion, and to redeem his people. And he's depending on God's faithfulness. He says, God, in faithfulness, we want to come back to you. You are God. You will do what you see is right. But Father, you grant us success. In the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, Jesus talks about prayer and repentance. And, and he offers this very strange story on the surface level. Now, if you just read through Luke 18, verse 1 through 8, it, it's a strange little story. Let me read it for you. It says, Now Jesus told them a parable 
on the need for them to pray and always and not give up. He said there was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord says, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay in helping them? I can tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Listen, the surface of that story sounds very strange, doesn't it? It says, listen, just pester, pester evil people and they'll give in. And so if you pester evil people and they give in, if you pester God, he'll give in too, right? It makes God sound like this, like, yeah, okay, if they keep coming, they're my kids, I love them. Sure, you can have what you want. But when we understand what Jesus is really talking about here, right? he's not saying, just as this widow pestered the, the evil man, so you pester God. He says, no, 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 listen, even the, the unjust, the unrighteous, even the wicked will give in to this, this persistence. And if even the wicked will give in, think about your God who loves you so much that he wants to give you gifts. When you come to him in faith, when you come to him in repentance, when you come to him seeking wisdom and guidance, when you come to him seeking clarity for the mission he has put before you, don't you think he's going to give you everything you need? Absolutely. Right? This isn't about pestering God going, this is what I want, so God, you better do this. This is about coming to him saying, God, what you have called me to, I can't do on my own. I need you. I know that God goes, absolutely, I know this. Here. Right? God will give us everything we need for the mission he has set before us. Listen, if you felt God stirring in your heart and you have sought the clarity for his voice, then you are in a great position. But even so, know that you cannot do the next steps on your own. It requires that we faithfully come before our God seeking that he grants us wisdom in what he has called us to. He grants us success in what he has called us to. Because what God is going to set you to will not be easy. What God's going to put before you for this, this next season of your life will not be easy. Right? Living on mission requires faithfulness and endurance. We talked about this a little bit last week. So if you didn't, weren't with us last week, you can jump online and listen back through that. But it requires faithfulness and endurance. And if we commit to what God has called us to, we know that he will provide. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. That doesn't mean God's going to make everything simple for us. But he will provide everything we need. And we, we talked about Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And in verse 4, Moses continues. He's he, reminding the Israelites of what God has done. And he says, listen, while you were in the desert, he says, your clothing did not wear out and your feet did not swell for these 40 years. God provided for his children. With all the technology we have in the world, I can get a couple years out of a pair of jeans. And I'm not wandering in the desert. 
But God kept the Israelites' clothing together for 40 years and kept their feet from swelling. That is miraculous. And God's calling in your life will not require anything unique from you. It doesn't require that you be a special kind of person to carry out the mission he's given you. It will require faithfulness. It requires faithfulness to what he's called us to. Right? Faithfulness in, in whatever God puts before you may require some difficult things for you. It may require a, a financial sacrifice from you. It may require that you pursue some new form of education. It may require that you serve in new areas that you've never served in before. It may require that you offer time and commitment to other people that you wouldn't have thought otherwise of spending time with. It may require that you let go of some of your insecurities and and open your home to other people. But the fact of the matter is, wherever God calls you, if you are faithful to what he has called you to, know that he will give you everything you need for what he has set before you. And that question is simply, when God calls us, will we be faithful? When God calls us, will we be faithful? I think one of the great tragedies of the Christian faith, especially in the the church in modern-day America, is that we've made Christianity a one-time decision. Right? I've trusted Jesus. I'm saved. I'm done. And in terms of our salvation, yes, that is true. Absolutely. There's nothing that is required of you for salvation but to trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But to take that as our entire Christian walk and our entire Christian faith misses out on the joy and the satisfaction and the purpose of living in light of the gospel. Because when we fully understand God's love for us, when we fully understand how he has given everything for us, how he sent Jesus Christ to live perfectly, die sacrificially, rise victoriously to deliver us completely, when we fully understand that, then we realize that Jesus means more than just being saved and then waiting to die. He has a mission for us. He has a work for us. He has a purpose for each and every one of us. And he's given us a calling to make the most of those opportunities to share his love, his grace, his mercy with the world around us. And we are, when we are ready to answer that call, then we find so much more excitement, so much more joy in this life and in our faith. So in these early days of January, as we prepare for the year ahead, let's prepare as individuals and as a church family to hear, to clarify, and to engage God's calling in our hearts. And for you, maybe that's going to be in some huge things this year, or maybe it's going to be in some really small, faithful things. But whatever it is, let's enjoy the purpose. Let's rejoice in the opportunity that God gives us to bring glory and honor to the great and awesome kingdom of our sovereign and holy God. Let's be ready this year. Father, we thank you for this day. And we are always grateful that you give us one more day of life and breath. A day that we haven't earned, a day we don't deserve, an opportunity that you, by all reasonable means, should not give us. And so we praise you, we thank you. But Lord, we don't want to stop there. 
we want to enter this gift of a day, this gift of a week, this gift of a month, this gift of a year, this gift of whatever you've given us and whatever you've set before us. We want to engage that with gratitude and joy, knowing that we are not aimlessly drifting through this life, but, Father, that you have given us a call. You've brought us into your family, made us your children, made us co-heirs to your kingdom with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And now you are sending us out on a mission. It is so easy in this life and in this world to just sit back and coast. But Lord, we don't want to be coasters. We want to be children of your kingdom, ready to take the truth and the beauty of who you are into the world around us. that we might share the joy and the hope of Jesus Christ. Those who are lost and broken and hurting. We might remind one another of who you are. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And in your great and your awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.